should we do that um, before the intro? <laughs> no, it shouldn't affect the show. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, like waiting on exorcisms when I when I have the choice. Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. I am Matt Smash the Clan Alados. And I'm JR Foresteros, and we're it today, folks. It's all. We, we decided <laughs> we wanted to go lean. Just the two of us. Lean and mean, because we got Gene. <laughs> That's right. On this week's show, we have our old friend Gene Yang, Eisner Award-winning writer, artist, and he's also a teacher. We've had Gene on the show multiple times. We've invited him back this time to talk about his upcoming Superman comic, Superman Smashes the Clan. Which, once again, did did you ever know that all you needed in life was Superman punching fascists? Because, I mean... I didn't. I'm pretty satisfied with just the idea of the comic. I can't wait to actually read it. I know, right? I hope he smashes multiple clan in each issue. <laughs> I'm sure he he can fly. He might just fly around the country and find different clans. <laughs> so hey i've got a story of the week for you this week lay it on me it's uh it's one that i did not see enough in the mainstream media I, people don't seem sufficiently concerned that apparently a full size not a not a tiny one a full-size panther was loose on the rooftops of france last week that's pretty sweet. yeah there's all these pictures where people were they were taking pictures calling the police calling animal control and uh, it's really interesting. If you look at the stories, they don't know where the panther came from. <laughs> like, there's not any missing from the zoo. So they're not sure where this panther came from and how it got onto the roofs of France. So someone had an unregistered pet panther. I mean, that seems a safe bet. And maybe left the screen door open. I'm not yeah. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I would. I'm no, I'm no zoologist. But uh, <laughs> my hunch would be that if a panther wants to go on a rooftop, a screen door is not sufficient to keep it inside. I'm certain that's true. And in France, they they probably don't even use screen doors in France on the rooftops. I wonder I what know. the penalties are for an unlicensed panther in France. I don't know. Like, do you think there's someone right now who's debating whether to go pick their panther up? Well, no, they're not debating whether they're going to go pick it up or not. But you know, you know, in France, that there's at least seven people listening to this podcast right now who have unlicensed panthers who are realizing maybe it's time to go register those beasts. <laughs> what, what, a, what a weird moment when you come back to your apartment after a long day work and you open the door and you go, the panther, where is she? Zagreb Blue, she is on the roof again. Oh, no, the screen door. Uh, you know, one of our favorite listeners, Jeanette Cathy, uh, is, I think, is still in France. So, oh, no. Jeanette, Be we'd safe. love it if you would reach out and A, let us know you're safe. And B, uh, let us know what it costs to, to license a panther in, in France. Because yeah, I don't I know. I feel the like Facebook should have updated me. Like, Jeanette is safe from the panther event in well, to your point, though, you led with people are not concerned enough about this, and I think that that's just it's for concerning. The proof I promise you, if I saw a panther in my neighborhood, you would hear about it nonstop. <laughs> every I time prom- I saw it, I thought you were going to say, "I thought I thought this sentence was going to end like this." I promise you, if I saw a panther in my neighborhood, I would immediately check in safe on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> 
I probably would. And if my wife were on the show, she would tell you that actually I don't have appropriate fear of large animals. And I probably would go after the panther to try and get a good picture. Okay, so what now I don't understand is that you seem to be shaming the French for doing exactly what you would do in this situation. No, but I would talk about it nonstop. I wouldn't be like, look, I've taken a picture of a panther. They've caught it now. I'd be like, what is happening? What is going on with this panther? I must know all. I would, ex- I would, expect, a text, I would expect a text picture to show up on my phone and be like, is that a panther? I spent half an hour today watching two squirrels chase each other around my yard trying to figure out what was happening. You didn't tell me about that. I, and I, I just did. This is my first chance. <laughs> I did close the screen door, though, when I saw him out there. Well, hey, let's make a sacred pact right now. Yeah. Between us and our listeners. Yes. That if we see roof panthers, we will immediately alert each other and all of them. Listen, any cat that when it stands is larger, higher than your knee, I want to hear about it. That's every cat. no. Yeah. Like when it's standing on all four feet, it's higher oh, than your knee. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So any cat larger than a house cat, I would like to hear about. You know, I mean, small... any cat could be a house cat if you have a big enough house. <laughs> well, it's pan- it's Panther might have been a house cat for all we know. I'm telling you, it was an unlicensed house cat. Yeah. yeah. It just, it's not my fault. It just kept growing. I thought it was just a normal cat. I really want to see hashtag unlicensed house cat on Twitter <laughs> or hashtag panther license. Yeah, that'd there's, be great. There's, there's a Black Panther joke that's just out of reach, and I can't figure it out. So I'm just going to leave it and hope that, our, hope that people can find it on Twitter. So Yeah, we don't want Superman to smash you, for sure. No, for sure not. So speaking of which, uh, we have already gushed at length about Gene and how great he is. Uh, but this interview proves yet again that he hasn't changed one bit. He's amazing. He's, he's nice in addition to being extremely talented and deeply thoughtful. It's really infuriating, honestly. Yeah. For those of us who struggle to have one of those three at any given time. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He's a model for all of us to follow. So let's, uh, let's get Gene on and hear what he has to say. So let's welcome Gene Yang. Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited. I, the other day I said to JR, we've had Gene on the show a couple times, and JR knew the exact number of times you had been on the show. <laughs> well, I just keep track. Awesome. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you with us again. And talking about two of our favorite things, Superman and the Ku Klux Klan. So that's, <laughs> it's a big win for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Gene, since you've been on, we've we've changed the name of the show to the Fascinating Podcast. Uh, so we would love to know. Uh, you know, you have so many projects in the air all the time, and we we know you think about so much different stuff. So, like, what's fascinating you right now? Just in your life. Oh, recently I read this book called Console Wars. I didn't even know how I heard about it, but it's amazing. And and I I shouldn't say read. I listened to it as an audiobook while I was uh, drawing some stuff. But it's basically about the Nintendo Sega War in the 90s. Oh. You know, and it's it's amazing. It's like, it's nonfiction, but it reads like a novel. And, and it's about, like, it's not just about video games. It's also about, like, corporate culture. And it's about um, this cultural clash between 
the American and Japanese branches of these two companies. It was it was awesome. I couldn't stop thinking about video games, like especially old school video <laughs> games for like weeks. <laughs> that does. Oh that man, that sounds <laughs> it's incredible. So good. Yeah, it's so good. Even if you don't like video games, I think you'd like it. What's one of your favorite old time video games? Like which one got stuck in your head worst? I have to tell you, I was pretty sucky at video games as a kid. Uh, <laughs> I was just not not good at them. But um, but I did lose many many hours of study when I was in college to Bomberman. You remember that game? Yes, Is that the red dude with the cape. Is that right? No, he didn't have a cape. He didn't have a cape. It was. Uh, I mean, I mean, you could play a red dude, but there was like a red guy, uh, a blue guy, uh, a white guy, and a black guy, and and they would. I mean, I, I actually for- don't even know if they would be able to make that game in today's market, you know, cause basically the whole game was you're trying to blow each other up. But uh, <laughs> I forgot was, uh, about Bomberman. That game yeah, was so great. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Yeah. That's my, that, was a, that was a big, big, big favorite in my house with, with my roommates when I was in college. Uh, I want to circle back, uh, Gene, because you were the national ambassador for young people's literature and you said you read the book, but then you corrected yourself and said you listened to it. So do you not count, Listening to an audiobook is reading a book? I guess I do. I guess I count it as reading. I guess I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, I guess I count it as reading. It's just reading in a different way. That's yeah. how I feel too, because I, I love to read and I have people all the time that are like, I've read this well, I mean I guess I read it. Like I listened to it. I'm like, whoa, no. Like that total that should totally count. Like I don't know why people feel yeah. like as though that's somehow lesser it's different. The end but, result is the same. The words are still getting in your brain. It's just going in through a different orifice, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel. So I, I'm glad. Yeah. That, okay, I'm glad. I was worried. Yeah, I think you're I was right. worried I that right. I had been telling people. Okay, okay, good. I was worried I was telling people wrong and I was going to get in no, trouble. I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> well, I, I think also, you're I, wrong. I, I, no, I love to listen to audiobooks too. I usually have like one or two books I'm reading with my eyes and then one that I'm listening to. And it's great. It's yeah. very, like, yeah. keep, you got to get the right, you got to get a good narrator though, right? Like a bad narrator. Oh, sure. Wreck it. Yes. I agree with that. But yeah, there's a lot of great ones key. out there. Yeah. How's this for a segue? One book you can't read audioly is a comic book. Well, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> They're starting to do that. They're, they, They're, like, there's an audio of Nemona. Yeah, there's what? There, and uh, and I just uh, you know you know who uh, Jared Krajowska? I don't, I'm probably not pronouncing his last name right. You know, he he does the lunch lady. He's like this. He has an awesome TED talk about um, about thanking your lunch ladies. He's he's like one of the most celebrated children's graphic novelists in America. He he did a book called um, Hey Kiddo, which is autobiographical. And and on his Twitter, I don't think it's released yet. But on his Twitter, he's talking about how right now he's recording the audio version of that. So they somehow wow. figured that out. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what that looks like, or or, or or you know what that sounds like. But they're figuring well, that that's out. That's really interesting. So that has a has an interesting connection actually to your project we're going to talk about today. Which uh, so we have Superman, the history of Superman. He starts as a comic book character, and pretty quickly. He gets his own radio show, right? So we're not seeing pictures yeah. of Superman at all. We're hearing the description of what's happening and the audio of them like conversing with each other, the music and all that. And one of the early episodes, or actually series of episodes, was Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross, which was 16 episodes of Superman fighting the, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, That's right. Which is really fascinating. So, And so this connects somehow to... Superman smashes the clan, which is your upcoming book. Is that right? 
That's right. That's right. Superman Smashes the Clan is essentially a uh, a retelling of that original storyline from 1946, and we've kept a, a lot of that storyline. Like we've kept the the major bones of the story. We've kept the plot. We've kept the the major characters. We've even kept the time period. So. Uh, the adaptation is set in 1946, right after World War II. But wow. that storyline, that original storyline, is considered one of the most important in Superman's mythos, but it's never been told as a comic book. And, and that's what so, Guri Hiro It's almost like you're, you're adapting an audiobook into a comic book. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't think about it like that, <laughs> but that's totally what we're doing. Yeah, we're doing the opposite of what they're doing with Hey Kiddo. So, Gene, this doesn't sound um, this doesn't sound to me dramatically different from what you did with the Shadow Hero, uh, where you're going. Was was that in the back of your mind as you were doing this? I mean, to me, they seem really similar, but I I know that that may not be true for you. Do you see them related at all? I I definitely see them related. You know, so the Shadow Hero was. Um, Sonny Lou and I taking this obscure character from the golden age of American comics and, and giving him uh, an origin, like the origin that his creator never gave him. And in the same way, we kept the era of the character. So our story was set in the 1930s. Um, so with, with Superman Specialist Clam, same thing. I think, I, you know, like most American superhero fans, I am fascinated with the golden age of American comics. Uh, mm-hmm. So I constantly find myself going back to that era. I, I just think that so much of, you know, super, superheroes are so popular now. And so much of what they are were, was established very early on. All of the conventions of the genre that we know and love today um, that all took shape in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Well, it's really interesting. I, I, one of the things that is a struggle for me sometimes in modern comics is there's a lot of deconstruction of superheroic stuff, which can, can be very interesting. And then sometimes I feel like it loses the core of what superheroes are meant to be in the midst of it. And we've talked about that a few times on the show. But, like, you look at Superman, his history from the very beginning, like, even in action number one, right? He's, like, stopping a corrupt politician. He's fighting the mob. He's saving a lady who's getting beat up by her husband. Like, he's always been very focused on, well, not always, but, like, in the beginning, was very focused on sort of social justice issues. Yeah. Yeah, he was like the original social justice warrior. And he was like kind of a... a, a, <laughs> the a, like a stands for social justice too. warrior. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> like if you read those early comics, he was not polite about it at all, right? He he would go around and he would essentially bully the bullies. I think that was his appeal right. at the very beginning. And, and, and I do think as, as, the, as the character got older, and especially as we went through the war years, like when we went through World War II, I think... Superman really solidified into this um, almost like a symbol of America, you know, and as a symbol of America, he couldn't do some of that bullying stuff, but he never lost his focus on, on justice. Yeah. So um, how much, how much did you have to get into like the, the, 
the real historical setting of post-World War II, because I, I know that one of the reasons that this story was originally told was because of the rise in popularity of the Klan immediately following World War II. And th- this was this was seen as a, a way to really strategically break interest in the Klan. But like, did you have to get into why that was the case in American culture at that time? Yeah, I did. I mean, I I kind of used this project as an excuse to do a deep dive on that particular era of American history. And it's just really fascinating. You know, one of the things that drew me to this project is in the original radio show storyline, at the center of all the action is this Chinese-American family. So the, mm-hmm. the plot line kind of goes like this. A, a Chinese-American family moves into Metropolis. A group of hooded racists gets really agitated about it. They burn a giant wooden cross on the family's lawn, and then Superman leaps in to defend the family, right? Uh, and, and, you know, the staff of the Daily Planet get involved as well. So I was just fascinated. I was fascinated that they chose to make that family Chinese-American. Uh, I uh, was fascinated that this was even a thing in the, in the 1940s. You know, like I, I've been reading Superman comics since I was a kid, and I just don't remember that many Chinese-American characters in those stories. Yeah. So I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to figure out why, like, like why did the writer's room of that radio show choose to make that family Chinese-American? It felt to me like it was not an obvious choice, you know? Like, I'm pretty sure yeah. the clan doesn't like Asian-Americans, <laughs> but it still didn't feel, it didn't feel right. like a historically obvious choice. So, uh, so I, I started looking into it, right? I, I didn't know anything about the history of Klan and, and Chinese Americans. And what I found was really fascinating. Uh, what I found out was, you know, shortly after the Klan was founded, so the Klan was founded the same year that the Civil War ended. It was founded in the South, in Tennessee. It was founded specifically because um, these, uh, these folks were freaked out that uh, the newly freed African Americans would be asking for equal rights, right? Yeah. Uh, so all of that kind of stuff I knew from my high school history class. But what I didn't know was, uh, at the time, newspapers all over America were actually writing about Klan activities. And there was a, a group of, of white supremacists in California that read about the Klan's activities in the South, and they felt inspired. Uh, so wow. back then, California did not have a, a big African-American population, but it did have a very large Chinese immigrant population. So, so these men basically took the costume and the methods of the clan in the South and even the name of the clan in the South. And they created a clan in the West that kind of ran up and down the West coast doing the exact same thing. Like they lynched, they burned down churches, they would murder uh, Chinese immigrants and their white allies, the same kind of stuff that was happening in the South, but it was on a smaller scale and it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as organized as what was happening in the South. So, so really, like, you know, the, the very first enemy of the Ku Klux Klan was the African-American population. But a close second was the Chinese immigrants of California, of the West Coast. So I, all that kind of stuff, I, I didn't really know. Um, and, then, um, and then I also didn't know that th- there are actually these three big eras of the Klan. So the first era is post-Civil War. And, um, and that, like, the, the Klan almost died out at the turn of the century. It died out mostly because Jim Crow laws had taken hold in the South. 
So the Klan in the South no longer felt threatened by the African-American communities. And then in the, in the West, um, the federal government had passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, which effectively ended all legal immigration from China to the United States for, for decades. And, and, and the interesting thing about that was the Chinese Exclusion Act was actually passed because, uh, because uh, racist politicians in California made the argument that Chinese immigrants' lives were so difficult that they were essentially slaves. So if America really wanted to do something to eradicate slavery, they should just end immigration from Asia. And that totally worked. <laughs> wow. like it, was a, it was a ridiculous argument, but it totally worked. You know? so, so because of those two things, because of the Jim Crow laws of the South, because of the Chinese Exclusion Act for the West, the Klan almost died out. You know, it was almost all gone, and it really didn't revive until this movie came out, until The Birth of a Nation in 1915. Yeah. So it just, like, it shows the power of story, right? Like, a, a story revives this hate group that was pretty much dead. So, so Gene, what, uh, and, and actually the Superman story, right, did almost the opposite. Like, it uncovered a bunch of stuff about the Klan in post-World War II and, like, brought all these secrets out in the radio show and kind of yeah. cut into recruiting and things for the Klan because Superman's against them. So, like, young people and others are saying, like, I don't want to be part of the evil bad guys, uh, yeah. which is sort of yeah. the opposite of Birth of a Nation, right, which was the heroic Klan members who were saving people who were in danger. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. So, so from what I've read, um, that storyline on that Superman radio show really did deal a public relations blow to the real-life Ku Klux Klan. So the Klan was actually, the Klan had a second era. It kind of ended uh, between the two world wars. And then they were getting ready to get back up on their feet again. They Right after World War II ended, they had this huge initiation ceremony outside of Atlanta, Georgia. It was sort of like their way of announcing to the world that they were a thing again. And then Superman beats them up on his radio show. Uh, and, and from what I read, like that was like after, you know, the Klan gets beat up by this man in a red cape on a radio show, people just couldn't take them seriously anymore. You know, they were portrayed. If you listen to the original show, you can find it on, on YouTube. They're portrayed as like these bumbling, hateful idiots. And after that, they just like kids everywhere were kind of playing Superman versus the Klan. And they're making <laughs> They're playing them as these mumbling idiots. I can just imagine these kids. They're like, I don't want to be the racist again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's I think that's just that's just so. It's so good that I mean, one, I can't, I I can't quickly enough come to the place where people quit complaining that comics have become political because of oh. this exactly right. Like, yeah, they've all yeah. like they've always been political, you know whether it's Captain America punching out Hitler or whatever. Yeah, um, but right. two, just, I, I think it, I think it really illustrates one of, uh, one of the reasons probably all of us love comics so much. Um, so you've already talked a little bit about what you're doing in the project specifically, but can you tell us a little bit about how it, how, how, it, how it came to be like this project right now? Like did, did DC approach you with it? Was this something that you pitched? Like, how did how did it come about for you to be attached to this? Yeah, I, I definitely. Um, I, I first read about 
the clan of the fiery cross storyline in this book called Freakonomics. Uh, they devote a whole chapter to it. Have you read that book? No. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's a nonfiction book and it just sort of, the whole thing is about looking at things in a different way. So they, they talk about that clan of the fiery cross storyline and they, and they really make that same point that we're talking about today, that stories really can affect the real world. So it's been on my mind for a while. I read that, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And then I had a meeting with uh, Marie Javins, one of the editors at DC Comics, uh, and we, we talked about this. So we, we talked about the possibility of adapting this old, old radio show storyline for uh, a modern audience. And it really, I don't know, it, it feels like, like there's this, there's this Chinese way of talking about the present. Like it's, it's sort of a Chinese tradition to sometimes use stories from the past to talk about the present. Because sometimes talking about the present directly can be too fraught with emotion. So you use past events to do it. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with Superman Smashes the Clan. I wanted to take this very historical story from the Superman mythos and use it to talk about the present day. That's what I actually wondered. Obviously, we haven't read it yet. Um, I wondered that. So part of the impetus in bringing this story about the clan, even though it's set in the past, is to talk about the dangers of where we are as a society right now. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. I mean, you know, one of the challenges of writing this project is I had to at least to some extent get into the minds of the clansmen. You know, I think, mm -hmm. I think whenever you're writing a story, you have to understand your or your antagonist on a, on a human level. You know, even if you don't agree yeah. with them, you have to at least get why they're motivated the way that they're motivated. Right. And, and really, I think that um, a lot of the, the motivation that I found is it's not like, I don't feel like it's just an American thing. You know, I feel like, you can kind of see echoes of it um, all over the world right now. You know, you can see it in um, different European countries. You can see it in India. You, if you follow, like, if you, I, I barely follow the pol politics in the Philippines. But even in the Philippines, like, there's some of those same strands are, are kind of showing up all over the world. And it really felt like, um, it felt like we had learned a lesson after World War II about maybe multiculturalism or about the brotherhood of humankind or something, like the brother and sisterhood of humankind, something. We learned some kind of lesson after World War II, right? And we're kind yeah. of forgetting that lesson. That's what it felt like. We're forgetting that lesson. And, wow. and when, you look at, uh, when you look at that original plan of the Fire Cross storyline, it was definitely about the Ku Klux Klan, but I do think it was also about that lesson that the world had just learned in its, you know, bloodiest uh, conflict up to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think you, you see that same, the same thing happening today and with the founding of the Klan is this, this fear, right? There's this underlying fear of the other replacing yeah. me or getting influence or, you know, something like that. So that, so that makes a lot of sense too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's also this, like, uh, I, th I think there's just this question about whether or not you can create a cohesive society or cohesive community 
when people don't share the same blood and history, you know, like, like that, I feel like that's sort of, that's sort of what America is. That's, that's why we're an immigrant nation. We're a nation of people who don't necessarily share the same blood and history. So how do you create unity out of that? Uh, mm. And I think there were answers that were offered after World War II, but I do think we've forgotten some of those answers. So I, I'd love to hear, cause I, I have, uh, I have some ideas of where you might go with this, but, uh, I'm curious, you know, Superman doesn't automatically lend himself to being a champion of the other. I mean, even, you know, his name is, a, is from what I understand, a subversion of Nietzsche's Ubermensch, you know, yeah. uh, ideology, which was what the Nazis used to justify their master race propaganda. Um, so, so why or how has Superman seems like, as far as I can tell, nearly constantly been a symbol of, uh, not even just tolerance, but like, like what you were saying, welcoming the other and embracing, uh, difference and standing up for the, the downtrodden. Like, like how did that come about given that it, you know, a Superman doesn't automatically have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I actually think that it was an insight on the part of um, Siegel and Schuster, the creators of Superman, in their very first version, or at least the first version of the character that we can find today. He was actually a villain, and he was essentially that Nietzschean uh, Uberman, Ubermensch. But um, but uh, but somewhere like somewhere between that and the publication of Ashen Comics number one, they changed him into a hero. And in changing him into a hero, they gave him a secret identity. Um, they they kind of gave him this um, every man identity of of uh, Clark Kent, and and there was something very powerful about that. That's why I think that's why he became like a world famous character. And I really think that that's rooted in their own experiences as Jewish Americans. You know, so Jewish Americans in the 1930s. They essentially, many of them had to live as if they had secret identities, right? Just to get jobs, some of them had to hide the fact that they were Jewish. Um, so I don't know if they did this on purpose or not. I don't know if they were conscious of doing it. But I do think that the whole idea of Superman is rooted in the Jewish American experience. And in that way, you know, the Jewish American experience is just, it's... Um, it, it typifies the experience of the other, right? And so, so because of that, I, I feel like Superman really fits as a way of talking about the other and the importance of the other within American society. Hmm. So, so that really cool. moves us kind of into the questions about, I and mean, I think we talked about this in the past when we were on the show, Gene, but like Superman is immigrant. Um, yeah, which becomes this really important piece of Superman, uh, at different times. And I think certainly probably in this story, is that a piece that comes out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's something that I've always wanted to, to hit head on, you know, like what does it mean for him to be an immigrant from outer space? And, uh, I, I was lucky enough to do 10 issues of the monthly Superman comic, but I yeah. didn't feel like... I didn't feel like I got to do that. I didn't feel like I got to tackle that head on. And, and this is the project where I get to talk about Superman as an, as an immigrant, you know, that's great. Uh, the, the two main characters are Superman and, um, 
Roberta Lee, who is the daughter of the Chinese American family who moves into Petropolis. And, and she is the son of, or I'm sorry, she's the daughter of immigrants. So um, I'm hoping that by playing these two characters against each other, this, you know, immigrant from Krypton and this daughter of immigrants from China, that they'll really bring out that otherness aspect. That's awesome. That's uh, what I'm, I'm just curious, maybe more for you, for you as a writer, for you as a storyteller, what were the, what were the elements of this project that stretched you or were like kind of surprising to you, um, that, that maybe weren't, have not been so far a part of your previous work? I, I had a hard time, um, figuring out how to write a story about the Ku Klux Klan for kids, you know, like very early on. <laughs> Very early on, we decided the original radio show was meant for kids like eight, nine, ten years old. We want to keep that same demographic, and yeah. it was just uh, it is rough. Like we we constantly had back and forth with with the editors about what we could include and what we could include. You know, um, wow. I think that was the I think that was the biggest piece, and and also like we we also felt I, I felt like I had to ride that um, that really fine line between portraying the clan as dangerous and also portraying them as bumbling. I think a, a lot of the, the power of the original radio show was the fact that they showed them as kind of bumbling, you know, like, yeah. and I felt like I had to keep an element of that, but if you go too far in that direction, you kind of, you There's lose no some of the drama and you also, you also kind of disrespect the, the, the true danger that they really do represent in the real world. Yeah. What was Gene? What, like, what you the parameters for what you were allowed to say about the clan in the 21st century versus what the radio show was able to do in the 1940s was there a big difference there um i don't know if i don't know if it was that big of a difference in that sense it was more like um well maybe maybe there was maybe there was i mean they 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 definitely talk about tar and feathering in the original show, which is something that we also talk about, but we did have a lot of discussions around it. You know, we don't, we, we don't show it at all. We just, we basically just talk about it. Whereas in the original radio show, even though no one ultimately gets tarred and feathered, they do get much closer than we do. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Uh, and also, the- also I, I think, I think, um, I think that, like nowadays I would say that, um, in part because of the PR blow that Superman dealt the Klan in the 1940s, that the, 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 the brand of the Klan just doesn't have the same, it just doesn't have any cachet anymore, I think, in yeah, mainstream American, uh, uh, American culture. But, but I think what we were going after more are, were, were Klanish ideas. You know, I think those right. Klanish ideas are just as potent now as they were in the 1940s. Well, and that's actually, they're kind of the cartoonish bad guys now. Like when you're talking to someone yeah. and saying, hey, this was like a racialized event or thing that happened, and you're like, I'm not in the clan. Like, I'm not racist. So they're yeah. like the obvious bad guys that, of course, I would not be that, which is really different than the 1940s for sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And Superman is the thing for that, at least in part. Thank you, Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wondered if I could shift just a little bit and bring in Kathy's question. Um, she she wanted to know if you would articulate why comics and superheroes are sp- important specifically to people of faith. 
um, the stories, the art, the images. Um, she, she said, why should people of faith care about how stories are told? Well, I think on a very specific level, um, for if you follow um, any sort of Western monotheistic faith, I really do think superheroes are rooted in that Jewish tradition. You know, even Superman, Superman, um, he's a strong man with this critical weakness that saps him of all of his strength, right? In his case, it's kryptonite. But that's essentially a mirror of the, you know, Hebrew hero, Samson, who also has a critical weakness that saps him of all his strength. In his case, it's, it's haircuts. So all of those things are there, you know, and, and even this idea that, um, like, I think at the core of almost every superhero is this idea that um, your strength is not for you, that your gifts are not for you. And, and I think that that runs really deep through many, many um, world religious traditions, including Judeo-Christian traditions. You know, uh, I also think that um, in general, um, people, people in religious traditions understand the power of story. You know, we understand like, like, uh, you know, as a religious person myself, I believe that religion is more than just a collection of stories, but it is definitely not less than a collection of stories. Mm-hmm. Religion, you know, we're, we're, we're communities that are organized around stories. Uh, and, and because of that, we, we have to recognize the popular stories of our culture and, and what powers they hold. Mm. Yeah, I was my, actually, my per- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, please, please. No, I was going to say, I was at, I was at this, um, I was at this, uh, uh, comic book commission. That was at comic con with my editor from first, second books. And we were watching all these cosplayers walk down the hallway. He just turns to me and he goes, I feel like there's something religious going on here. And I think he's right. You know, I yeah. think that, that cosplay um, instinct is religious in some way. So, you know, for, for those of us from uh, like a Christian faith tradition, we have this idea that we want to be little Christ, that we want to in some way embody um, our God, our ideal. And I feel like there's something like that that's going on with cosplay too, right? They want to embody some virtue or some, they want to embody some, something, some kind of ideal that they see expressed in the culture around them. I love that. Yeah. When you were talking about the fact that our religion is, is at minimum a transmission of story. I, my, my particular tradition is uh, it comes out of the revivalist faith and almost any revivalist preacher I know, you know, they, they might share like a scripture or two, but then it's all of these stories that are designed some, some from some, you know, from the scriptures, but then also a lot of them from contemporary life that are all designed to, to, to bring us into this thing that they want us to experience, you know? And it's the, the kind of preaching that comes out of our tradition is like very heavy on storytelling. And if, and if you don't do that, people don't like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. (laughs) They get really mad. They're like, it was boring or whatever. Uh, (laughs) Um, Gene, we, we have to, wrap up in a minute, but I did want to ask you about the artists you're working with. Uh, you mentioned before we started the show that you worked with them before in the avatar series, their work's really fun. And it has that kind of, I mean, it looks like something you might, I mean, it's a more 
polished version probably, but something you could have come across in the 1940s has that adventures of Superman feel to it. So how'd you get connected to them? How'd you bring them onto this project? Yeah, we, we work together. Their, their name is Gurihiru. They're, uh, they call themselves a Japanese studio. They're, um, you know, they're an art studio based in Japan, but I've met them. They're really just two amazingly talented, super crazy, hardworking women. I mean, the, if you look at the number of projects that they take on every year, it's shocking that it's just two oh, wow. women that are doing it. So one, one of them uh, does all of the pencils. The other one does all of the uh, colors and the inks. And they are, uh, they're stellar. I think they're among the top artists working in the world comics market today. And I feel wow. incredibly lucky to be wow. working with them on this. So we, we got introduced at Dark Horse. We um, did five Avatar graphic novels together, Avatar The Last Airbender. And then when, after I proposed my um, this project to DC, after I sent in my proposal, they asked me who my ideal artist would be. And I put in Guru Hero's name without expecting them to say yes. And then when they did, I was just floored. So <laughs> we, we talked a little early on. We, we talked about how uh, we wanted this project to feel like those old Fleischer Superman cartoons yeah. mixed with manga, you know, and that's yeah. totally wow. what they delivered. That's exactly yeah, what they delivered. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so good. I, yeah. Some of the, uh, uh, I think on uh, Hollywood Reporter, maybe they had up some, some of the art and I just love it. It looks so fun. And you've got this uh, yeah. kind of like evil rocketeer guy on there too. This Nazi bad guy flying yeah. around yeah. with a jetpack. It's <laughs> pretty awesome. Yeah. He's, he's from the original show, too. He, his name is Adam Man. He's one of the radio yes. show villains that didn't make it really to the comics. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Until now. Yep. Split the Adam. Until now. Until now. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, that's so great. Well, uh, Gene, you've already shared multiple things that you're enjoying right now. But at the end of the show, we usually talk about something that's been fascinating us this week. So if you have another, you're welcome to share it. And JR and I will and and share a couple, too. Sure. I'm, I'm reading a, a novel called uh, The Rise of Kiyoshi. It's a novel with no words. I'm reading it with my eyes. Those are the orifices I'm using for this one. And it's uh, done by a guy named, uh, I think his name is F.C. Yee. It's set in the world of Avatar. It basically gives you the, the, the life story of the, uh, the Avatar, two Avatars before Aang. It's really good. It's amazing. Nice. That sounds great. So no words meaning it's all graphic. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no words. I meant no pictures. <laughs> Oh no! I was like, okay. I was like that old Snake Eyes GI Joe comic. Yeah, I was like, yeah. Okay, yeah. I can, no, I can get I it. That wrong. So it's all words, all words. Uh, all so words. I, I love to watch cooking shows, and I just kind of, you know, when there's a new one out, I, just try, I try to find it. And so there's there's one called Iron Chef Gauntlet, which is seven of the best chefs in America that all have to cook against each other. And each week one person is eliminated. And then the, the winner of the seven then has to beat three iron chefs to be considered an iron chef themselves. Wow. So it's, it's brutal, but I, I think one of the reasons I love those shows is because you get to watch artists at the top of their craft, like being stretched to their limits. And so on like on this particular show, you have these chefs that all own their own restaurants that are all like world renowned chefs. And they're saying, "Okay, I've never done this technique before, but I'm going to try this because I've just got to stretch myself. 
That's you cool. know, That's and, awesome. and it's just, I, yeah, I love seeing that kind of stuff. And then Alton Brown is the judge and multiple times he will come up to them and say, cause you know, he stands back at his little podium and he goes, Oh, they have this thing and this thing and this thing. So they're going to make a that. And I'm like, what? How, what? And, but he's right. But then every now and again, he'll say, I don't know what they're doing. I'm going to go check. And he'll go over there and say, tell me what you're doing. And they'll explain it. And he'll say, that's genius. You know, I can't wait. And so, like, just watching him be amazed by them is really fun. So Sounds fun. Yeah, it's really a cool show. And uh, I don't know. I like I love to cook. I, you know, so Iron Chef Gauntlet is what I'm into this week. That's awesome. Um, I just read both uh, both volumes of a comic called Mech Cadet U by Greg Pak and art by Takeshi Mizawa colors by Triona Farrell. It's really fun. I read it with my daughter, Micah. Um, it's, it's set in a world where these giant robots, mechs come down out of space. And like 50 years ago or something, the first one came down and bonded with this kid. And now every year, a handful of them come bond with a kid and go fight space aliens like monsters uh, and so the, the world has gotten used to this. They have this whole training curriculum. They send these kids through. So they're ready. The top three kids are ready every year to meet their mech. And this year, what happens is one of the mechs is like malfunctioning or something. He has this part that keeps popping off and he goes to the janitor's kid instead and bonds with that kid instead of this kid who's been training her whole life for it. And so it sets up this kind of conflict between the kids, but also they have gigantic building size robots, uh, you know, with them. And they're meant to be fighting ro- uh, space monsters. So it's just fun, just a good time. And my, my daughter, I got them, they came in the mail and then she disappeared with them. I was like, I was just going to sit down and read one. And then she comes back the next day and goes, I'm done. You can look at them now. I was like, fine. <laughs> but yeah, they're really fun. Mech Cadet U, it's called. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, that is one of my favorites. Greg Puck. Oh, yeah. He is great, man. Um, Hey, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area on October 16th, starting at five and going till eight, Gene will be doing a launch party for uh, Superman Smashes the Clan. And so October 16th, five through eight, five to eight at Flying Colors Comics, which is in Walnut Creek. Uh, which is the comic shop I used to work at, and Gene and I are both friends with the owner. So Gene will be there yep. October right. 16th if you want to go hang out with him. And if you're in Dallas on October 16th and just want to come read my copy when I'm done with it, you're, you're welcome <laughs> to. <laughs> That's offensive. You should buy your own copy. Don't just borrow. I mean, you should, but I'm just saying you can definitely I'll, – I'll hold it and you can read it as I turn the pages for you. <laughs> JR will give you commentary. This is That's what right. Gene told us about this page. Oh, I'll turn it into an audiobook. <laughs> Perfect. There we Perfect. go. All right. This has been episode new, number 237 with Gene Yang. The book is Superman Smashes the Clan. It is out October 16th, issue one of, of three, correct, Gene? That's right. Okay. And is it, will they be October, November, December? No, it's every two months. So it'll oh, be October, nice. December, okay. and then February. Nice. Okay, there we go. So just in time for Valentine's Day, um, it'll it'll round out. Uh, Gene, it's always such a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you all. Thank you. All right, we will be back next week with another great episode and hopefully a couple more of our co-hosts. Until then, take care of yourselves out there and remember, especially if you have a local comic shop, to put Superman Smashes the Clan in your profile. Thanks for listening and take care of yourselves. 